All right. Well, the we're starting week two of the the Reformation. We uh, we're doing five weeks on church history from 1500s to the 1900s. Um, but I'm taking two of the five weeks on the Reformation in the in the 1500s because so much happens uh, in the Reformation. It's so foundational to what we're gonna see in the next three weeks that I, I thought we needed to really cover our bases and one week was just not enough to to do just justice to it so last week uh, I'll throw the slide up here last week we uh, we went through the early years of the Protestant Reformation we looked at Luther and Zwingli two main figures in the early years of uh, of Reformation uh, Luther was by far the the most influential uh, figure probably still is by far the most influential figure for the Reformation, the one that when you say Reformation, everybody pops to Martin Luther, and, and rightly so. Um, Zwingli had a very short ministry, as we saw, but he had a very profound impact as well in Switzerland. Uh, Luther was in Germany. So we've been focusing on the, the European continent, the countries in Europe. Um, we're going to look at one more reformer on the continent. Then we're going to cross the English Channel and talk about the English Reformation tonight, which I'm very excited about because the English Reformation is wild and awesome and hilarious and all kinds of crazy things happen in England as it should. Um, But we're going to start uh, still in uh, Europe, still on the continent, and we're going to look at uh, probably the, the next most important figure after Luther for the Reformation. And it's this guy by the name of John Calvin. You've probably heard of Calvin, uh, probably in a way that makes him sound like a monster who uh, is the worst person who's ever lived, and I hope to dispel some of that uh, for you tonight, because he really wasn't. He was a a terrific leader, um, a terrific um, just just reformer, and and really an incredible man in his his way as the Lord used him. And I hope you'll have some appreciation for him even if you don't fully grasp or agree with every last thing that's become known as Calvinism. And we'll talk about Calvinism a little tonight. I want to address it because it's, it's a part of the deal. So um, let's, let's talk about John Calvin. Just give some quick biography. Uh, if you want a deeper biography, I have a copy of a really great biography on Calvin's life and ministry. It's called The Pilgrim's Life. Uh, it's called, well, John Calvin, A Pilgrim's Life by Herman uh, Selderhus, uh, it's a good Dutch name there, and he is, that's a great book. So if you do want to dig into a biography of Luther, if you're a biography person, <clears throat> that's a great option. Probably the best one I've come across for, for Calvin's life. But we'll do a flyover uh, tonight, and uh, we'll, we'll see the highlights. So he was born in France in 1509, which was the same year that Luther and Zwingli were ordained as priests. If you remember, Luther and Zwingli were both ordained at the exact same, not exact same service, but the exact same year, and uh, were the same age. Well, Calvin was about 20 years younger than those two guys. And so I, I would refer to Calvin as basically a second wave of the Reformation. He's, he's got the benefit of time. He's got the benefit of being able to see the Reformation develop over a couple of decades he was only eight years old when the 95 Theses was nailed to the door in Wittenberg. So he, he was a, a young, young kid when the Reformation started. And as he grew, uh, 
the, the Reformation had grown and had developed. And, and so Calvin had the benefit of time. Uh, and I think that's part of partly why he was um, so thoughtful and, and had a lot of things to add to the conversation. It was also because of his temperament, though. Luther was incredibly different from Calvin temperamentally. They were not the same kind of people. Uh, Luther and Calvin, as far as I know, never met, never interacted. But Luther was a very boisterous man. He was very bold. He was, especially as he continued to get older, he got more and more bold. Uh, there's, a, there's an entire website that is dedicated to Luther insults. So Luther would just insult people constantly. Um, and he was just bold to do that. And if you ever want Luther to insult you, go to lutherinsults.net or something like that. And it'll throw up a random insult from Martin Luther's <laughs> writings. Uh, Calvin was not that guy for the most part. Um, he would definitely speak up when he needed to. But um, he was more of a shy man. He was studious incredibly studious. Um, that's really what he wanted to give his life to was study and um, reflection and solitude. And that's not what God had for him. But he, he did spend his time, a great deal of it, writing. And, and you can see this is what these books are here to illustrate is how much Calvin wrote throughout his life. Um, the, these, these first 22 books here, the shorter ones, those are his commentaries on the Bible. So I have these, I just, I hoofed all of these from my office out here to show you this. These are on a, a bookshelf. I refer to them often when I'm preparing sermons. Um, he wrote a massive amount of pages on the scriptures. So these are all just taking the Bible verse by verse and walking through it. He does skip quite a few of the Old Testament books. He never got to the historical books or most of the poetry books. He only dealt with the Psalms. Um, and then he gets to the New Testament, and he writes on most of the New Testament, except for Revelation. I think he didn't get to that one. But other than that, that's a very impressive thing for him to be doing. Um, so he wrote that. And then those last two books on the end there, uh, the two different ones, those are the, the, the magnum opus of Christian or, or Reformed theology. They're called the Institutes of the Christian Religion. And um, also known as the Institutes. I'll just call them the Institutes because that's what we shorten it to. But the Institutes of the Christian Religion is Calvin's magnum opus. Uh, it, it was th those two volumes there are 1,500 pages of theology and um, just an incredible work. So, so anyways, I'll, I'll refer back to that as in time, but I wanted to give you a visual of this man and his writing and how much he contributed. Whereas Luther wrote a lot of books, but he wrote a lot of very small books. Not to say that that's not you know, a good thing in itself, but they were very different. Luther was going to fire things off ra rapidly. Calvin is going to think long and hard about things, and uh, that, that shows in how he... How he uh, obviously, in what he produced. Okay, so uh, easily, Calvin is the most important or significant theologian of the time, um, and maybe of all time, probably of all time. A world-class theologian. He was a renowned teacher, preached through books of the Bible, much like Zwingli had, and uh, he was a valiant reformer. He, he stood, stood for what was right very very often, and it cost him uh, a lot of personal suffering in the process. 
Um, just some young, young life stuff here. Uh, his father, Gerard, was a financial administrator for the Roman Catholic bishop in Noyon, France, in that diocese. And because of that position, he was a member of the professional class. He had, he had some status. He had some wealth. Uh, he was up, firmly upper middle class and, uh, and was able to, because of that, send his son, John, to university, uh, much, much like every significant reformed character that we, we talk about has gone to university. And that was a new, relatively new development since the Renaissance. So John goes to what was at that time the probably the most prestigious university in Europe at that time was the University of Paris. And he went there to study theology. His father intended for him to prepare for the priesthood. And so while there, he was immersed in a lot of things about the Renaissance and humanism and scholarship of the time. And um, he, was, he showed himself to be incredibly educated. I mean, he was 14 years old when he went to college. Uh, that was unusual even then. Uh, he was a brilliant young man, and he graduated with a master's degree uh, in just uh, a few years from that university in Paris. After graduating with theology, uh, Gerard, his dad, fell into conflict with the bishop of Noyon. He, uh, they, they had a falling out, and basically what happened is, is that Gerard got really disenchanted with the Catholic Church. He didn't want his son to have to be involved in all of that mess, and so he redirects his son away from the priesthood and encourages him, well, really tells him that he's going to study law and become a lawyer. And so uh, in, that, in those days, in the 1500s, you were, you, if you really wanted a, a long, successful, wealthy life, you either got into the church and worked your way into a bishop position, and then you were set financially for life, or you became a lawyer. And uh, that was one of the other very prestigious career options of the day. So with the, with the priesthood off the table, because of the falling out, uh, he wants his son to go into law. So he sends him to a couple of different universities for that, uh, University of uh, Orleans and Borges, and um, he ends up... Um, Really, during this period of his life, learning some some critical skills in analytical thinking and in argument, in persuasive argument. Um, and these things would really become useful in the future for him. He would put these skills he's learning at the university into use for ministry. But in 1539, so a couple years after he enrolled in university for law studies, his, his father died unexpectedly. Um, and Calvin at this point is 21, and he decided, because his dad was, uh, was, was dead and had passed on, he, he, went to, he went back to the University of Paris to study something that he actually wanted to study, which was classical literature, and, uh, and then later on would go back to law school and finish his law degree in 1532. So uh, the guy just learned a ton of things, went to school constantly uh, for a bit there. Um, but it was while he was a student in, uh, at the University of Orleans that Calvin encountered some of the writings of Luther. And Luther's writings had been spread around, it had been circulated, <clears throat> were widely discussed and debated at this point in academic circles. And so it was there, while being encou- 
just encountering ideas of the Reformation, ideas of, Cal- of Luther's, Calvin becomes converted to Christ. He, he, his eyes are open to the realities of the gospel. And here's how he describes it. Uh, it's a long quote here, but this is how he describes it in one of his commentaries, in the preface to one of his commentaries. He says, to this pursuit, which is the pursuit of the study of law, I had endeavored faithfully to apply myself in obedience to the will of my father. His father, like his actual, his dad, right? Not, not God. But, but God, by the secret guidance of his providence, at length gave a different direction to my course. At first, since I was too obstinately devoted to the superstitions of popery, to be easily extricated, extricated from so profound an abyss of mire. He wasn't a fan of the Pope by this point, right? God, was, uh, God by a sudden conversion, subdued and brought my mind to a teachable frame, which was more hardened in such matters than might have been expected from one at my early period of life. He's like, I was too young to be stuck in my ways, but I was stuck in my ways, and God got me out of that. Having thus received some taste and knowledge of, the true, of true godliness, I was immediately inflamed with so intense a desire to make progress therein, that is, in godliness, that although I did not altogether leave off other studies, I yet pursued them with less ardor or enthusiasm, right? So um, basically the trajectory of Calvin's life has changed when he starts to realize the mire that he's in, the abyss of popery, all of these things that are uh, just deeply entrenched in superstition and all these things. And he's, his eyes are open through, uh, partly through Luther's writings, partly through just the, the discussions that he's having with his fellow classmates. And, and that's what opens his eyes to the gospel. So in November of 1533, a guy named Nicholas Kopp, who was rector or kind of a chaplain or more, more or less at the University of Paris, and a friend of Calvin's, um, he, Nicholas Kopp preaches this message at the university at the opening term of, I think, the winter term of the university. And he basically just pleads for the students at the university to uh, go into Reformation mode on the basis of the New Testament. And he makes this bold attack on the theologians of the day and uh, the Pope and all those things. And and Kopp encountered some seriously strong resistance to his Luther-like views, as they called them. And so <clears throat> Calvin, for his part, believed to have been collaborating with Kopp on this. In fact, they found a manuscript in Calvin's possessions uh, of this speech or this sermon that Calvin had written. So he probably wrote the sermon or helped write the sermon and, uh, and was clearly on the side of Reformation at this point in 1533. Well, so as a result of this, um, the call for Reformation in, in Paris, Calvin was forced to flee the city before he could be arrested. Um, again, this was a heavily Catholic-controlled area. Um, France still is largely Catholic. Um, the Reformation never really took root in France, um, even to this day. But that aside, um, <clears throat> Calvin ends up going off, leaving the city. Um, he, he finds refuge in the uh, estate, at the estate of a very wealthy man who is sympathetic to the Reformation. 
And there in that man's personal library, Calvin starts to read the Bible and uh, also starts to read St. Augustine and starts to work through early church leaders. And this is what, like everything we see in the Reformation, it's the Bible that starts to really shape and form Calvin. Um, In 1534, he moved to Basel, uh, Switzerland, which had become a Protestant stronghold. If you remember, Zwingli was in Switzerland. He was the guy who was leading that Reformation and had had led. This is now Zwingli's dead. And um, but this this whole country of Switzerland had really embraced largely the Reformation, and Basel was one of the cities that did. And so he moves to Basel. He hopes his intention there is to study in solitude. He just wants to buckle down and study and write. Um, and that's actually where he ended up writing the first edition of the, of the Institutes. And um, he gets, you know, it, it grows and expands over time, but he spends some time working through that. And in the Institutes, uh, Calvin basically outlines the, the fundamentals of the Protestant faith. And he presents a really compelling argument, I think, for the Reformed interpretation of Scripture. But what's incredible to think about is that he wrote the Institutes at the age of 25. And, uh, and he finished it, at least the first draft of it, in, at 26. So it took him a year to write all of that or most of that. And he added to it in time. But um, he had only been a Christian for one year at this point And had written that. I mean, just incredible to think about how Calvin pulled that off at the age of 25 and it uh, makes me wonder what I've done with my life sometimes. But um, there's, there's Calvin. He's just crushing that. And uh, he spends about a year uh, in Basel just writing and thinking and, and working through the Institutes, what will become known as the Institutes. Um, a little bit later, 1536, he decides to move to Strasbourg in southwest, southwest Germany. He wants to, again, study be a quiet scholar. He doesn't have any intention of becoming anything real prominent. He was a, probably a very introverted man by, by temperament. Um, but there was a war that broke out between Francis I and Charles V, who was Holy Roman Emperor. And that war prevented him from taking a direct route to uh, Strasbourg. So he ends up detouring to Geneva, Switzerland, Uh, where he actually just meant to stay the night and figure out what he was going to do from there. But as he enters into uh, the city of Geneva, he's he's recognized. Somebody recognizes him as the young author of the Institutes. Uh, I don't know how they recognized him, but maybe through conversation or something like that, figured it out. And um, they basically bring him over to meet this guy named William Farrell, uh, who was leading the Protestant movement in Geneva and had been for about 10 years. Geneva had recently, by this point, voted to leave the Roman Catholic Church, and they became a independent Reformation city. Uh, and the one thing that they were missing in this was a teacher who could really articulate the Reformed truths. So that's where Calvin enters in, and they that Farrell finds Calvin to be the right guy for teaching uh, and being the primary lecturer and pastor for the church in Geneva. And that's where he begins his ministry. Um, 
he's he and Pharaoh together start to work towards making the city of Geneva and the church within it um, align more accurately to what the scriptures teach. Remember, this was a recent, they'd recently broken from Rome. So there's still a lot of ongoing practices that are not healthy and not biblical. And they're working through how to get them uh, into, into alignment. And one of the ways one of the things that they def- that they did reform very early on was the exercise of church discipline at the communion table. In other words, saying, if you're not a Christian, you shouldn't be taking communion. And if you're living in open, unrepentant sin, you should take a hard look at yourself. And, and so he started to um, basically refuse to serve communion to certain people who he knew were not actually walking in, in Christ in any meaningful way. And that really ticked off the the people who were being held back. And they happened to be probably the most powerful people in the city. So so the crisis, it's kind of, you know, boiling. It it starts to um, really become pretty, pretty intense. But on Easter Sunday of 1538, Calvin refused to administer communion to uh, certain leading people who were living in open sin and that leads them to banish Calvin from the city. They, they expel him from the city. And uh, actually, Farrell and Calvin were both forced to leave Geneva. So where does he go? He goes to Strasbourg, which is where he meant to go uh, before he went to Geneva. So he goes down to Strasbourg. Um, his purpose there was the same purpose as before. He wanted to get out of the public eye. He wanted to just be a scholar, just wanted to think and write books and not be in, in the open. But Strasbourg's chief reformer, Martin Bucer, uh, insisted kind of forcefully that Calvin would continue his public preaching ministry. And so Calvin reluctantly but uh, does succumb or, or submit to Bucer and becomes the pastor of this very relatively large group of refugees from France. So, so he's in Germany. Lots of people left France, which was heavily Catholic. If they were Protestant, they had to flee to other countries. And France was, I mean, Germany was one of those countries that would obviously receive Protestants, being Martin Luther's legacy. And so he had about 500 Protestant refugees in the city of Strasbourg that he pastored. And, uh, while there, while he was pastoring and preaching, he also was given a lot of freedom to write. And so that's where he started to write a lot of his commentaries, um, particularly Romans he started to work on. He translated his institutes from Latin into French. Latin was being obviously the language of the educated. He wanted his institutes to be read by common people. So Calvin was, was French. He was born in France, so that was his first language. So he's writing the, or translating his, his institutes into French. Um, and it's just like, yeah, like I said, these, this stack of books is just an amazing testament to what he accomplished throughout his young life there. Um, he spends about three pretty happy years in Strasbourg. He gets married while he's there. Uh, he marries a widow uh, named Idolette, uh, and she uh, had a couple of children from, from her marriage. Uh, her husband died, and Calvin um, was kind of matchmaking, Bucer sort of match did the matchmaking between Calvin and Idolette, but they had a very happy marriage. Um, and after about three, three and a half years, 
uh, in Strasbourg, the city fathers of Geneva wrote him and uh, asked him to come back. He, they wanted him back. And in, because in his absence, the, the whole situation had really deteriorated. It, it, got, it got bad. Imagine that. You let all the psychos who don't love Jesus to run the place, and it's, it's not going to go well. Um, so that's what happened. And eventually the, the city council, or the fathers is what they would be called back then, but the city council was like, no, we need Calvin back. Let's get him back. So they, they asked him to come back, and he said no at first, but eventually changed his mind. Uh, decided that though there were a lot, a lot of happy years in Strasbourg and certainly much more comfort in Strasbourg, that the Lord wanted him to, to follow him into, into hardship as well. So he, he went into Geneva knowing it was going to be difficult, knowing that he was probably going to have problems, and he did continue to have problems there. Um, but he saw his life in Christ as this this calling to just willingly give himself to the Lord, no matter what may come. And his, his personal motto uh, became, I, I, my heart, I give to you, Lord, eagerly and earnestly. That was his, that was his motto. That's, that was his personal creed, more or less, of how to direct his life. And so he submitted to what he believed God's will was, and he returned to his pastorate in Geneva. Uh, when he gets there, he gets there on September 13th, 1541. He was gone for about a year, uh, three and a half years, excuse me. And his first sermon back, he just resumed the exposition or the preaching of the scriptures at the next verse from the one he left off at. <laughs> uh, and I think that's, that's actually hilarious because he'd been just preaching through, through books of the Bible, verse by verse. They kicked him out, and the next Sunday, you know, he's back. He's just like, boom, we're back here. This is where we left off. And uh, he, this was really this continuation of just preaching through the books of the Bible, wherever it is, was a, was a statement that verse-by-verse verse preaching of the word would hold the primary place in his ministry. And it did, and, and the Lord used that incredibly. <clears throat> Excuse me. So in early 1564... Uh, he becomes very, very ill. And, uh, excuse me, he preaches for the last time in, in uh, the pulpit there on February 6th. So by April of that year, it was very, it was obvious that he was going to die. And uh, he was relatively young, but everybody died relatively young then, back then. He was 54. Um, but he faced death with, a lot of resolution, just like he faced the pulpit and like he faced the, the critics in Geneva. And um, he, he knew that he was going to be with Jesus. And it was the strength of his faith built on the sovereignty of God that appears in his last will and testament. Let me just read what he wrote in his last will and testament for you. I, I think this is commendable. He says, I render thanks to God, not only because he has had compassion on me, his poor creature, to draw me out of the abyss of idolatry in which I was plunged in order to bring me to the light of his gospel and make me a partaker of the doctrine of salvation of which I was altogether unworthy. And continuing his mercy, he has supported me amid so many sins and shortcomings, which were such that I well deserve to be rejected by him a hundred thousand times. But what is more, he has so far extended his mercy toward me as to make use of me and my labor 
to convey and announce the truth of his gospel. What I love about that is Calvin was always looking at his own need for Jesus. Um, he, he didn't write in his last will and testament how badly Geneva treated him <laughs> or how badly these people were, were to him. He looked at himself and was just so grateful for the mercy of God for him as a sinner. And he recognized that. And uh, so that's, that's a, a, an insight into his, his final days and where his heart was as he's preparing for his death. Three days later, after writing that, um, Calvin called together his fellow ministers from Geneva, brought them into his, his bedchamber, and uh, basically just encouraged them. Um, <clears throat> he, he encouraged them that the Reformation is not over. We're still working. Um, he told them that they would have trouble, but God was with them, and uh, that they needed to have courage, fortify themselves, and that God would take care of his church and maintain it. And, uh, and essentially with that, though he lived a little beyond that, he didn't live long afterwards. Um, he just passed the torch on to these, these other men. And so what's really interesting, though, is Calvin died, and uh, Luther was buried, I think, rightfully and symbolically under his own pulpit. That's where he's buried, uh, in Wittenberg. Um, Calvin was buried in a common cemetery with an unmarked grave by his own request. He, he, wanted, to just, he wanted to just disappear into nothingness. <laughs> he didn't, obviously. We're still talking about him 500 years later. Um, but nobody knows where, he was bar- where he's buried even to this day. They don't know where his grave is. Now, if you go to Geneva, I have not been there, but I've, I've seen the pictures of the city, city center. There is a gigantic statue of John Calvin in the city of Geneva. Uh, some monuments have been made in his honor, uh, but that wasn't his desire. He wanted, he wanted to and was buried in just a common cemetery without a tombstone and just went into the grave. So... So that's Calvin's life in a, in a very quick blurb here. And I, I want to address, before we get into the, the English Reformation, how did we get from Calvin to Calvinism? Okay, that's, I think, one of the questions that we should address briefly. And again, there is so much we could say about this. Um, but I'll just say, say, first of all, Calvin never intended to start something called Calvinism. Uh, he he died, he was buried in an unmarked grave. So obviously the dude doesn't care about his legacy having an ism attached to it. In fact, even while he was alive, there were people throwing out the term Calvinism, and he really hated that. He was, it was not his thing. He didn't want it to be about him. He didn't want, um, he, he wanted it all to be about the glory of God in Jesus Christ. And um, he spent his life fighting and preaching what he believed through the Bible was the simple truths of the of the scriptures and of the church. Um, but something did come about called Calvinism, and it came about roughly about twenty years after he died. It's a it's a story that we don't have time to unpack totally here, uh, but it would lead to a lot of misunderstandings about the man himself. Um, as a result of what Calvinism uh, has, has conjured up in people's minds, it's created a caricature of Calvin, one that 
uh, one of a man who is obsessed with God's predestination and election and who or who will not be saved, right? That's almost always what the conversations around Calvinism are. And um, I want to give you some, some context to this because in the final edition of the, of the Institutes, those two books there on the end, there's 1,521 pages, but only 67 of those pages are given to the topic of election. 67 pages is not even enough for a full-size book by almost anybody's standards. Right? Even today, a, a short book is 100 to 150 pages. 67 pages out of all of that, 1,500-some pages, is nothing okay, comparatively. Um, instead, most of the Institutes is about God, the world, what Jesus has done to save us. It's about prayer. It's about many other topics of, of Christian living. And yes, there are things about how God chooses to save people because that's in the Bible, right? And so that is, uh, but, but I think we have this caricature uh, from some people who have turned Calvinism into this, this nasty thing, uh, this nasty word that, that just doesn't, isn't reflective of who Calvin really was or even what his emphasis in life was. But let's talk about what Calvinism is just briefly. Um, it's now, after 20 years after his death, there was um, a, a council called um, the, the Canons or the Council of Dort uh, in the city of Dort. And it, this, Calvinism, as we know it today, has now become known by this acronym TULIP, um, which was uh, historically developed by Calvin's followers as a way to defend a position by another guy and his followers, a guy named Jacobus Arminius, who held, uh, Jacobus Arminius held to a view that I think is unbiblical um, uh, regarding the doctrine of salvation. And so the five points of Calvinism are five points of refuting the five points of Arminianism or Arminius. Arminius developed five points um, that doesn't have a cute acronym like TULIP, but these guys, they got five points. And so then TULIP is the, is the five points that Calvin's followers uh, developed to, yes, articulate Calvin's views, but Calvin never articulated his views quite like this. They were just trying to respond to a, I think, an unhealthy understanding of salvation. So let me go through the TULIP real quickly. <laughs> T stands for total depravity which means that we are totally sinful to the core and cannot save ourselves. Does that sound unbiblical? No. Okay, I think we can all agree with that one. But Arminians, as they were presented historically, did not believe in total depravity. They believed in a lesser form that basically allowed the, the human heart to be able to get there on their own. And that's not good, in my view. Unconditional election is the you. Um, so unconditional election emphasizes that God saves us, calls us and saves us apart from anything we, we do. That's what the unconditional part means. It is apart from anything that we do. There's no condition that God looks at us and says, oh, I've got to save you because of this thing in your life. I think that's biblical. Um, this, the third point is L, limited atonement. And a lot of people struggle with this one, and they struggle with the, the limited word there. 
Uh, Charles Spurgeon, many years after this, would, would prefer the term particular atonement, but that doesn't work with the TUPIP is not a great acronym, so let's not go, go with that route. But limited atonement is basically just simply saying that Jesus died for those who he would save. That doesn't sound controversial to me, but that's, that's the concept, is that Jesus' death was particularly directed towards those who would be, be saved by him. You know, you can argue about these things. Like, it's okay, like we have been for hundreds of years. So it's okay if you don't agree with every nuance of this, but I'm just giving you the overview. I stands for irresistible grace, which means that when God does call us to salvation, we respond to his call. And we're not going to resist forever. We may resist for a time. We, re- we may resist initially, right? We, we're not, it's not saying that we're just being drawn like robots and programmed. It's saying that when God's grace opens our eyes, we respond to him inevitably and eventually. And then the P is the one that everybody is okay with, except for really hardcore Arminians. And that is perseverance of the saints, which is that when, when Jesus saves us, we will continue to be saved until the end. We will persevere until the end and make it to heaven. Arminianism is exactly the opposite of all these things. So total depravity is not total depravity. It's, it's just like some, some slight you know, struggle in you that Jesus has to kind of patch up. Uh, unconditional election is not unconditional, it's conditional. It's conditioned upon something that God looks at in your life and goes, oh, okay, I want you on my team. Limited atonement isn't limited or or particular to those that God saves. It's universal, which opens the door to a lot of problems of, well, either Jesus dies and can't save everybody he died for, or um, everybody will inevitably be saved. That's a problem. We don't believe that. That's not the Bible. And that, that's not what the Arminians wanted to mean by that, but that's the implication of their view. Resistible grace is, a, is another way of saying that we, we have power that God doesn't have, right? I mean, and then to, to not be able to persevere and to lose our salvation is something that nobody really wants to believe anymore. So, uh, so anyways, that's, that's an overview. Now you can, again, we can do, maybe we will do a five-week series one of these days on the five points of Calvinism and, and really flesh it out a lot more, get you more Bible in there and, and actually defend these things. But I'm not here to rally around five points of Calvinism. I don't call myself a Calvinist. I don't like the term either. Calvin didn't like it. I don't like it. But it's, what, it's what's become known as the tulip issue here. So maybe someday we'll talk through that a little bit more but that's the overview, and I wanted to just address it because I know there's a lot of people who are like, Calvin, he's bad, right? And uh, the reason they think he's bad is because Calvinism is something they probably don't understand or haven't really been been taught. Um, and so it's all misunderstandings about, well, God just is mean, and he chooses some people, and he hates other people. And it's like, well, that's, that's not exactly <laughs> the point, right? Uh, so anyways, that's that's that. Okay. Um, there's probably a million questions about that, but anything that I can answer real quickly before we jump across the channel to, uh, to, the, to England, to the glory, glory land of England here. And, uh, no. All right. <laughs> I love the English Reformation. This is, this is good stuff. So um, here we go. Uh, 
Just like in Wittenberg with Luther and in Glarus with Zwingli, it was Erasmus's New Testament that started it all off in England as well. This is, this is happening. Now, we're skipping a little bit further back. So Calvin comes kind of second wave. I wanted to address Calvin, um, but he, he was happening after the things that we're talking about here largely as well. So we're kind of back in the same timeline as Luther and Zwingli. Um, and Erasmus had developed, or not developed, but had uh, worked on a New Testament manuscript uh, from, to Greek. He brought it basically from the Latin uh, Vulgate of the Catholic Church back into the original Greek. And that's where everything starts to really bring the Reformation about is because now these scholars are able to read the, the New Testament as it was written and are starting to realize that things are not actually being, uh, things were not translated quite right in some parts of the Latin Vulgate. So a young priest in England named Thomas Bilney had read the New Testament uh, in, in the Greek there and came across these words, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, which is 1 Timothy 1.15. And uh, what's interesting and so, something we need to remember is that even the average priest in the 1500s did not read the Bible. They, they read the church fathers or they read the scholastics or they read the Pope, but they didn't read the Bible. And now that Erasmus' New Testament is out there and these guys were educated enough to be able to read the Greek language, they, they started to read the Bible for themselves and they started to come across things that they'd never heard before. And for Bilney, it was that verse, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And here's what he had to say about that. He said, immediately, it's, I seemed unto myself inwardly to feel a marvelous comfort and quietness insomuch that my bruised bones leaped for joy. After this, the scripture began to be more pleasant to me than the honey or the honeycomb, wherein I learned that all my travails, all my fasting and watching, all, and all the redemption of masses and pardons being done without truth in Christ, who alone saves his people from their sins, much like to the vesture made of fig leaves wherewith uh, Adam and Eve went about in vain to cover themselves and could never obtain quietness and rest until they believed in the promise of God that Christ, the seed of the woman, should tread upon the serpent's head. Now, what that basically means in, in, in summary is he realized from reading the Bible that all of the, the mass, the popery, the, the things that were happening and were, were not actually aligning with the truth of Scripture in Jesus Christ. His eyes are open. But, I, but just like with Zwingli, Bliney was not a Lutheran. He had never heard of Luther, not at that point at least. And just like Zwingli had come to his views independently by reading the Bible, so had Thomas Bliney. He, he, was, uh, he, he was recognizing these truths just from the scriptures alone and starting to come to terms with it. Now, Bliney ended up being burned for his preaching in 1531. And his story is, is an interesting one anyways. It's, he, he basically is arrested um, for his preaching, initially thrown in the Tower of London uh, as a prisoner. He's there for about a year. He's tortured into recanting his views. He does recant, 
and because he wants to live and they let him go and he goes back to his church and then he feels remorse for recanting because he knows in his heart that he believes the things that he believes. So he starts preaching them again. And then they were like, no. And they burned him and killed him there. And so, uh, but, but in this process, he was instrumental in drawing a number of others to the Reformation. He was an influential voice uh, in England. And it was around that same time that Luther's books started to pour into England. Again, he's just, because of the printing press and getting all these books out there, uh, it's spreading all over Europe. And, and Luther's books get into England, and um, this group of followers of John Wycliffe, we learned about Wycliffe in the last session, uh, kind of as a forerunner to the Reformation. A lot of his followers were still alive and well, doing, doing their thing, and they were getting Luther's books, and they were just eating them up. They just loved what they were reading. And um, what ends up happening is that Luther be, gets condemned by the Pope, and he's excommunicated, if we remember that from last week. Um, and because of that, his books were burned uh, in England, in Cambridge, in Oxford, in London. And yet it's a funny thing that when you ban a book, uh, more people want to read the book. So <laughs> they banned them, they burned them, uh, and yet that just fueled the fire, uh, so to speak, metaphorically for people to want to read more of Luther. So, so they started uh, smuggling Luther's books into shipments of other things and inside barrels and they were just being sneaky about it. Uh, and they got through ports like Ipswich over on the, I think on the uh, eastern end of England. And they start to have this underground network develop about the Reformation. So in Cambridge, uh, which is in the eastern part of England, uh, a group of dons or professors there started to gather together in a pub. Because uh, that's the English thing you do. You gather in pubs. And it's called the White Horse Inn. It's no longer there, sadly. It got demolished at some point many years ago for an expansion on whatever other building was by, nearby. There's a plaque that, that commemorates that it was there. Um, but there was a lot of Luther talk happening at this pub, and there's a lot of beer drinking happening at this pub, and so they started to call it Little Germany. And uh, that was so, sort of a, a joke or whatever, but th- these conversations uh, in Cambridge were starting to fuel the fire of Reformation on the eastern end of the of the country at the same time in the western end of the country in the rural west uh, there is a guy named William Tyndale he was a linguist he was brilliant he was young at this time and he uh, was also quite influenced by Luther's writings and caused quite a stir at his place of employment which was the home of Sir John Walsh Uh, Tyndale was was there to tutor Sir John's children, um, and he did, but he also spent a lot of his time with Erasmus's New Testament and was starting to think about what it was teaching. And so at the dinner table, they would have conversations and Sir John would have, being a, a noble and all these things, he would have a lot of prominent people come over for dinner and Tyndale's just talking their ear off about how wrong Catholicism is and how wrong the Pope is and all these things. And at one point, a scholar that was there uh, for dinner one night blurted out at Tyndale's, after Tyndale's little talk, uh, he said, we'd be better off without God's law than the Pope's, which is, wow, okay. Tell us where you, how you really feel, sir. Tyndale replied to that by saying, I defy the Pope. 
and all his laws. And if God spares my life through many years, I will cause a boy that drives the plow to know more of the scriptures than you do. And uh, that became Tyndale's kind of infamous words, is that the plow boy would know more of scripture than the pope. Um, and obviously he wasn't talking to the pope, he was talking to a scholar who was quite the, the papist. But his point resounded through the country, and uh, it became kind of the slogan that the plowboy will know more than the pope, you know. And uh, yeah, in some ways I think that's, that's true, or at least became true at that point. So Tyndale um, decided, uh, rightly, that the Bible needed to get into the hands of the average person. He had the skills and the, and the knowledge to, to read Erasmus's New Testament. But uh, the average person in England couldn't read Greek. Most of them were actually illiterate in general. But he decided to go to work translating the Bible from the original Greek into English. And he wanted the, the learned and the unlearned to have access to the scriptures. But because England was at this time a firmly Roman Catholic country... Um, they were hostile to the Reformation cause at that point. And so Tyndale ends up having to move to Germany, to Worms precisely, which is the the city that initially Martin Luther had that confrontation uh, at last week. Um, But he moves to Worms. At this point, Germany is firmly Protestant. It's a safe place for him to work. And uh, he begins to translate the Bible, uh, the New Testament, I should say. And uh, he does so in a few years. He accomplishes that work, and it starts to get printed off. Tyndale's Bible gets printed off by the thousands. Eventually, around 16,000 copies of Tyndale's Bible gets into the hands of the people in England, again being smuggled in. Now, 16,000 might seem like a small number, um, but when you had a, the island at that time had a population of about 2.5 million, and most of those people were illiterate. So... 16,000 copies of the Bible was a huge, huge amount of Bibles flooding into the country at that time. Well, that did not impress the English bishops. Um, the, they were Catholic bishops but in England. And so to them, they viewed Tyndale's New Testament as dangerous. And so all copies were ordered to be burned along with their owners. So the, these guys loved, loved to burn people. Um, but... <laughs> The point is, is that they were right. It was dangerous, actually, in a, in a sense. It's dangerous to the establishment when people know their Bibles. And so Tyndale's translation, being that it was far more accurate than any other translation up to that point, in, uh, even comparatively to like the Latin, um, it was more true or more accurate to the meaning of the Greek words than, than any had been. And one example of that is that in the Latin Vulgate, there, there's a verse that was translated as do penance, right? You got to do these things to be saved. And uh, Tyndale took that word that was, had been translated as do penance and translated it as repent, which is actually the meaning of the Greek word metanoia. And he realized as a linguist, metanoia doesn't mean do penance, it means repent. It means change your mind. It means turn around, go in a different direction. And so when you have an example like that and many others like it, the fundamental teaching of how to be saved looks completely different, right? 
And, and so instead of all the formal external sacramentalism of the Catholic Church, now people are realizing that salvation is through a change of heart towards Christ. And that's what Tyndale's translation really contributed to. Well, eventually, he's still abroad. He's not back in England, but the, the church catches up with him. Uh, in 1535, he was captured. And uh, in October of that year, he was, uh, he was strangled and burned near, near Brussels. And um, here's what he prayed. His, la- his famous last words were, Lord, open the king of England's eyes. And uh, the way that God answered that prayer is pretty incredible, although not probably anything close to what Tyndale meant by that prayer. So let's talk about that king of England. That king of England was Henry VIII. Maybe you've heard of Henry VIII. He's probably one of the most famous kings in English history um, because of his exploits, you know. And uh, he, this king would eventually transform England from a devotedly Roman Catholic nation to one where the Bible was read, preached, and discussed in English. But what I want us to emphasize here is that Henry's motives for this were not exactly love and devotion for Christ or or the gospel. Um, But the Lord did work through it nonetheless. So at the age of 17, King Henry VIII reluctantly married his elder brother's widow. They were childless. Um, His brother died rather young. Um, And Catherine of Aragorn was her name. She was um, the the aunt of um, Charles V, who was the Holy Roman Emperor. So this was a political marriage for sure. Um, King Henry had to get a special dispensation from the Pope to have this marriage because it wasn't technically legal under church law for someone to marry his brother's wife. Um, And so he got a special dispensation to do this. But... Um, he ends up deciding after several years of miscarriages uh, that Catherine was incapable of providing him with an heir to the throne. Now she had, they had had a daughter who survived uh, named Mary. And, um, but that wasn't really good enough for Henry. He wanted a son because uh, just historically putting this into context, England had just gone through the War of the Roses, which was a war uh, largely about the line of succession And he didn't really want a repeat of this by having a questionable succession to the throne when he died. So he didn't want a daughter, even though they they could technically rule uh, on the throne. It was was still a disputed issue at that time, and the War of the Roses was kind of around that issue. So Henry's going, don't want a repeat of that. Let's just get a boy in here so that it's an unquestioned heir. And that was the intention. But Catherine is uh, not producing that son the way he hoped. And so he decides that the best course of action was to make the marriage illegal and then have it annulled. Uh, He didn't, he couldn't legally divorce her according to church law. And he couldn't have just killed her like he did with some of his future wives um, because of her nephew, Charles V. He didn't want to start a war with the Holy Roman Emperor. And and that, that was a political decision on his part. So so what he does is he bases his, this, this whole thing on Leviticus 20, 21, which states that if a man marries his brother's wife, it's, it is impurity. He has shamed his brother and will be childless. So he's, he's just basically saying, hey, 
were childless, even though they weren't actually childless because they had a daughter. But in his mind, that counts. And um, he decided to ask the the Pope to annul the marriage, basically saying, hey, I've I, I did this. It's it's the Bible says it's impurity. This is why God's not given us children. Annul the marriage. Well, the new pope, there was a the pope that had given an exception to him or a dispensation to him, had died. There's a new pope now, Clement the the uh, seventh. Well, he felt that he couldn't do this because um, he didn't he didn't really have scriptural issue with it. It was more of an issue of not wanting to contradict his predecessor. And he's going, well, my predecessor made a special dispensation for this marriage. I can't reverse that, or he, so, he, so he thought. And so that made Henry really mad. And I'm just simplifying all of this. But ultimately, dot, 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 here's what happens. Henry takes England and says, we're leaving the Roman Catholic Church. And he brings the whole country out of Rome. Now, at this point, there have already been other countries that have broken off from Rome. This wasn't the first thing that had ever happened, first time this had ever happened. But Henry had no intention of not being Catholic. He, want, he still wanted England to be a Catholic nation. He just didn't want it to be Roman Catholic anymore because then he could establish himself as the head of the church in England. And uh, then he could basically say, hey, this is what I want to do, and it's all good. So that's what he does. He establishes himself as the head of the church in England, um, still embrace the doctrines of the Catholic Church at this point. Um, but what happened is that abandoning Rome opened the floodgates for Reformation to start happening in England. And one of the biggest things that happened through some of his bishops, who are uh, one of them, Thomas Cranmer, is one of the main main bishops that contributes to this, um, they they were sympathetic to the Reformation, and so they started to put Tyndale's Bible in the churches and started having the churches do their services in English instead of Latin. And all of that started to snowball because now people are hearing the Bible in a language they can understand and they're, they're having worship in a language they can understand and they're able to read the Bible for themselves and, and that starts to spiral towards Protestantism. Well, real briefly here, Henry uh, famously ends up marrying six different times. Two of those marriages were annulled, one with Catherine. Um, Two wives were executed. Anne Boleyn was probably the most famous of his wives that were executed. Uh, One died of natural causes, Jane Seymour, who ironically was the only one who actually provided him with an heir. (laughs) So so he was probably sad about that one, actually. Um, But Jane Seymour does have a male and then she dies uh, of natural causes. And then his final wife outlived him. Lucky her, right? She got, she got lucky. Um, but in all, he had six marriages. This was, not like, this was not like a moral, upstanding human being. But um, he, had a, he had a lot of motivation to get this, this heir to the throne. And he did, eventually, through Jane Seymour. So after his death, um, Henry VI was his son through Jane Seymour. And he was only nine years old at the time. So the country was placed under the care of his uncle, Edward Seymour, and he ruled as Lord Protector. So basically, this is what happens in England. If, if somebody is too young to, to sit on the throne, 
but they're the next in line. Then there's a Lord Protector who, who's there to hold down the fort until that child comes of age. Um, and so that was, it was appointed to be uh, Edward Seymour, who was uh, a Protestant or very close to a Protestant. And he and the Archbishop of Canterbury, Thomas Cranmer, who was also moving towards Protestantism, if not already there, uh, started to work towards making England Protestant. Um, perfect opportunity because you've got a, a baby king who has no, he's nine years old, ages one of my kids. It's like, yeah, they're not going to tell you what to do. <laughs> like, that is great. And so it worked out timing-wise for them to start implementing their, their Protestantism. But they were smart. They didn't take it and just like flip everything over. They took the slow and steady approach. Um, but a lot of things did change. Um, Edward VI ended up growing up to become a, a, a very convictionally Protestant king as well because he was under the care of these men who were Protestant. But even before he got there, there was things that changed. Um, all of Henry's anti-Protestant laws were reversed. The clergy were allowed to marry, which as a little side note and kind of its own crazy story is Thomas Cranmer ended up going to Germany uh, and secretly getting married before any of this happened while he was, while it was still firmly Catholic. He's the Archbishop of Canterbury. So he's like the top guy for the, for the Church of England. And he secretly marries this woman and has to literally hide her in a box whenever there's anybody around because if he got caught, he'd be killed. So poor woman is probably one of the first martyrs of the, of the Reformation in a sense in that she had to sit in a box with air holes punched in it. It was just a crazy story, but I had to share that because it was just, it's wild. Um, but ultimately the mass is banned and it's replaced by a, a Protestant form of worship. They wrote the Book of Common Prayer uh, in the, the 1500s, and that was to ensure that each church was teaching evangelical theology. Um, in England, there were definitely setbacks. Uh, Queen Mary ended up uh, taking on the throne. Uh, she becomes known as Bloody Mary. She takes the Church of England back to Rome for a blip. Um, it was an incredibly unpopular decision when she did it, uh, but she was uh, Catherine of Aragorn's daughter, was raised as a Catholic. Uh, through a series of not having heirs to the throne, she ends up getting on the throne in the end, uh, takes the church backwards, uh, or takes the country backwards into, into Rome. Um, but when she dies, again without producing an heir, uh, I don't know what was going on, what was in the water in England at that time, I don't know, but they're not getting pregnant correctly or something. But England uh, ends up uh, returning to the Protestant faith under her successor, which was Queen Elizabeth I. And so uh, within a year, Queen Elizabeth uh, I had grown up uh, under Protestant tutors uh, where she was, she was one of um, King Hen uh, yeah, Henry VIII's daughters as well from, I think, Anne Boleyn's, uh, perhaps. I can't remember now off the top of my head. But anyways, she does replace Mary, and all the decisions that Mary made were undone, and a new act of supremacy by Parliament, they actually did it smartly this time, so they're not just holding it all in the hands of the monarch. The, the Parliament declares Elizabeth to be the, the head of the Church of England, uh, but, that, but they declare it to be a Protestant nation by law. And it still is to this day, and, I, and many of you know this, I watched the coronation of King Charles, uh, I loved it, but one of the things that... Um, 
he was asked by the Archbishop of Canterbury, this is one of the questions he was asked, is he says, will you, to the utmost of your power, maintain the laws of God and the true profession of the gospel? Will you, to the utmost of your power, maintain in the United Kingdom the Protestant Reformed religion as established by law? That was in May of last year that that question was asked and King Charles vowed to do so. So wild stuff out there in England. But that's a, it's still to this day a Protestant Reformed country by law. <laughs> doesn't mean everyone there is a Protestant. doesn't mean everyone there is reformed. doesn't mean everyone there is even a Christian. But it does mean that, that the laws are established so that it will never be a Catholic nation again in a formal sense. So crazy stuff. But that's the English Reformation in a nutshell. And uh, I just want to wrap up tonight by doing the quick flyover of what the Reformation really accomplished and what it, what it summarizes. Remember, the Reformation is a, was not led by one man, as we've seen. You had Luther, Zwingli, Calvin, the guys in England. All these things were happening kind of independently. Um, but as the Reformation grew and developed, it started to form a, a, a coherent set of teaching that distinguishes itself from the Catholic Church. And what comes out of it is now known as the five solas, of the Reformation. And I thought it'd be worth wrapping up our time in the Reformation before we get into the Puritans next week, which will be another exciting series uh, of characters. But uh, the five solas really do get to the heart of what the Reformation stands for. The word sola is a Latin word that means alone or only. And, um, and there, like I said, there's five solas of the Reformation. I'll just roll through them quickly. The first point is sola scriptura, which is scripture alone. What this means and what this came to, uh, to embody is that the scriptures are the highest authority. It's not a mixture of scripture plus tradition plus church teaching that gives us our authority. It is, it is not to say that, that church tradition or the teachings of, of the church don't have any value but they don't hold uh, authoritative value. They're, they're, not, they're not the source of our authority. And so Sola Scriptura goes to the heart of the Pope's authority and basically distinguishes Protestants from Catholics in that, the, that Protestants believe the Bible is our, is our source of authority and only the Bible as the ultimate authority. So if you think about, the, think about it like a boxing ring, um, there's only one that's going to remain standing in the end of that fight for Protestants, and it's the scriptures. It's not to say we can't learn from history or we can't learn from other teaching of, of, or other sources. It's, that, it's to say that the Bible is the one that stands alone in the end, and, and no one can override it, overcome it, or overthrow it. Second point of the Reformation was solus Christus, or Christ alone. This means that salvation is and can only be by Jesus Christ alone. This is what Thomas Bilney discovered as he read the, the Bible. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And that turned his whole life upside down as a young Catholic priest. Solus Christus means that we don't get, to, we don't get saved by anything that we do or some mixture of things that we do plus Jesus. 
It's because, as the Bible teaches us in Ephesians 2, we are dead in our transgressions or our trespasses. So we are entirely up a creek without a paddle, not even a little paddle. There's no paddle, right? We are powerless to save ourselves, which is why Christ had to come, and he is the only one who can save us. The third point of the Reformation is sola gratia, which is grace alone. Salvation by grace alone means that the whole thing from beginning to end is the grace of God. It's not just a part of it. It's not just the entry point. It's all of it. The grace of God alone, we, it's similar to Christ alone. We can't earn our salvation, right? But, but that all of salvation is a gift. That's what the word grace means. It's an undeserved gift of God freely given to us through Christ. Fourthly, it's sola fide, or faith alone. This teaches that we receive the gift of salvation by faith alone, simply by trusting in Christ for our salvation, simply by taking God at his word. Now, we need to be careful not to fall into the trap of thinking that faith is the nice little gift that we give to God in exchange for salvation, because that's contradictory to grace alone. It's not this gift we give, and then in exchange, he gives us something. It's actually taught in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, that faith itself is a gift of God, that God gives us the faith to believe. And yes, faith is our response to what God has done for us in Jesus. And it's faith alone that we enter into salvation. But it's not this trade-off. It's that God's grace gives us all of it, including our faith, and we respond to him accordingly. And then finally here, it's sole, sole de gloria, Deo Gloria, excuse me. Glory to God alone. So simply put, um, when all those other things are true, those other four points, we can truly cry out the glory of God, that salvation belongs to him, that salvation is his. It's all from him from beginning to end. And everything that is necessary for our salvation has already been done by God. We simply receive it as a gift. And even that receiving is a gift from him and made possible by him. That means he gets all the glory, right? If there was a tiny piece of salvation that was mine to to attain, I would cling to that like crazy and boast in it. But there's nothing about my salvation or yours that that is our doing. So God gets the glory. We don't. The author of the universe deserves all the glory. And if all those other things are true, then that that's, should be the response of our heart. So um, I, I just want to conclude real, real simply that if, if we believe those things, as I think Scripture clearly teaches them, we can be grateful that God raised up men during this Reformation, during these, the 1500s, to recover these truths and then bring them to us. Like, I think we should be thankful to the Lord Jesus for, for rediscovery, the rediscovery of the gospel. And that's really what the Reformation did. It rediscovered the gospel, the, the message of salvation, and, and removed all of the external things that were clouding, its, clouding it from people's eyes and, and simply brought it back to be about Jesus and the gift of grace that he is for us. So there, there's that, and uh, that, those are 
five solas. That's, uh, that's the overview of the Reformation. Again, there's so much more we could have covered, um, but I think that'll be a good uh, launching point for us for next week as we start to talk through the 1600s, and we're going to get into the primary thing that we want to talk about in the 1600s is the Puritans, and we'll, uh, we'll work through that, and that's, that makes me excited because I love the Puritans. So we'll get into that next week. All right.